Thank you. Hi. Have you noticed something's different today? There's not one of you fanning yourselves. Have you noticed that? And if Amy ain't fanning, ain't nobody fanning themselves. I can't believe it. Like, so they have done something to the air conditioner. I don't know if they laid hands on it or what, but whatever's happened, we're grateful. I'm feeling more air than I've ever felt. Um, Pray for two hours. Yeah, this is really. So, um, anyway, uh, we're glad you're here. And, uh, hey, I've got a... there's two things we're doing today. We're concluding something and we're beginning something. We're reading two chapters today. And if you're walking here going, oh great, two chapters, that's a lot of verses. You hang on because it unfolds like a movie. And we are finishing 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is going to be finished. And we are starting 2 Samuel. So we're going to, look, we're going to go through the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And we're going to go through the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Now here's what's... Uh, Here's what's interesting. The book, 1st and 2nd Samuel, is really one book. It's one continuous book. It was divided during the canonization, the, 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 the basically when scripture was given to us and divided up and the verses were thrown in there and chapter delineations. So it really should be called the book of Samuel. They read contextually, chronologically, right together. Um, I'm excited because... Uh, not only are we beginning something new, we're also finishing something. And I really appreciate you all have been walked through. This is, a, this is a great church that allows us to walk through systematically Scripture. Nobody's ever come in going, how much longer on, you know, Samuel, Saul? And yeah, let's be real. We're, we as pastors talk like, okay, Saul's been chasing David now for months here, you know. But it's Scripture. Every time you read Scripture, something jumps out. And so if you are brand new with us today, Saul is the king of Israel. Israel wanted a king. God said, you don't need a king, but if you want one, here he is. You're going to hate it because he's going to drag your sons to battle and they'll die. They'll surely die. But if you want a king, go ahead. They actually said we want... Think about the pain of that and... I would have to say, I don't want to say God felt pain in that, but he did, like, God, we want, a, we want a king. And God's saying, I am your king. And you want a king. You know, go to your father and say, I want a, I want a dad. I want a new dad. I mean, like, with a pain. Like, what? So he's been given a king. King Saul's incredibly jealous over David. This once mighty man is a shell of who he once was. He has been told the night before that he is going to die. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that. He went to a, a fortune teller, a medium. And God's like, all right, you want to go do that? You want to you err on a side of darkness? I'll do more than give you an EBGB feeling. I'm going to raise Samuel from the dead. And it freaked the, the medium out. She freaked out. Saul freaked out. They all freaked out. And this Samuel comes from the dead and basically is imparting, uh, Saul, you're going to die tomorrow. He knows he's going to die in this battle. So here we are at a place of uh, a battle that the Israelites have chosen. I'll show you why they've chosen them in just a second. But a little background. The Philistines are the arch enemy of Israel. David is on the run. David is hiding. David is living in land Controlled by the Philistines. 
So have that in the back of your mind. Be thinking, wow, in the midst of this battle, David is living in the land of the Philistines. Saul's about to go to war. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Let's stop right here for a second. Go back to verse 1 if you could, Ariel. Did you notice where it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. The Philistines were at a very advanced army. The men of Israel basically had this. They had archers. They had spearmen. Right? They had swords. That's it. Uh, they had mounted some... some as you call them, divisions that were mounted, and, but it was mostly infantry. The Philistines were an incredibly advanced army. They were the only army and country at that time to use, in that area that used iron. So these men had incredibly advanced wep- weaponry. They also had what the Israelites didn't have, chariots, which is why the Israelites always fought on a mountain. They would never pick a fight on flat ground. So if you're reading the scripture, it's always the Israelites are fighting the Philistines on Mount, 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 on the hills of, because they knew if they were down low on common ground, the chariots would come through and demolish the troops. So the Israelites have gone up to a mountain. The archers are firing. The archers, when it says the archers found them, the archers would line up by the thousands and they would unleash horror and hell by arrow to go down on an enemy. And as they're doing it, they're being called upon by a spotter. Somebody would run out into the field and he would spot something and they would give an indication of windage and things like that. Things would affect the arrows. And finally, the archers are throwing so many arrows that they finally find King Saul and his men. So imagine the Israeli army is before them down at the base of the mountain. They have their archers as well. The archers are wrecking havoc upon the Israelis. The infantry is moving in, and they are trying to kill the king. If you, there's some scripture in First King where these Syrians are told uh, by their, they're told to the chariots. It's a speech given. They said, "Whenever you go out to battle, forget trying to find the least of the men. Go after the king. Kill the king right away." In the American Revolution, you've seen a, 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 an alt, history's altered. It changes all the time. And the fact that, like, in the American Revolution is really interesting. British officers were on horseback, and they were being shot by American patriots behind trees. You know, they, were, they would lean up behind a tree, shoot the officer. The British were so incensed that they wrote George Washington and said, how dare you shoot our officers? <laughs> you know what George Washington did? He stood back at communique and told his officers and, and his men, we don't shoot their officers anymore. Not right away. We shoot the men. It was a gentleman's war almost. Well, the, the officers would never brandish a, uh, a musket. They were leading their men. And so the, the American officers, well, okay, we'll, we'll go for it. And now, of course, it's kind of a free-for-all when you're in war, you know. But in this particular case, you went after the king. Don't go after these runaways. This, just go after... You kill the king, you have everything. Cut off the head of the snake, the body can't do a thing. What's a, 
what I'm about to get into is so much psychologically we could break down that does not flow in an historical sense. You have to stop and ask, why, is, why are things unfolding the way they are? As much as I love reading about history, it was something incredibly interesting. Um, uh, I don't know how long ago this was. It was the Iraqi invasion right after 9-11. And there was a, there was a period of time where the soldiers were coming to James Haley for head wounds. Uh, the, James Haley's the VA hospital. They were coming in with head wounds. And there was a soldier who had come in. It was coming out of a coma. He had been put in a medically induced coma in Randstein, Germany. That hospital was filling up. They were sending these guys down here. Some of the pastors, we would go in and sit in this room. And we would give the family a break. We knew he was going to be coming out of coma. really didn't know when. They'd taken him off the medication. And he began to come out of the coma. We're in the room, and we begin to hear the beginning of a story that he would later finish with us. And what was interesting, when he came out of the coma, he began speaking to us as if he was continuing telling a story in Germany. We believe he was giving some kind of a security debriefing. He was debriefing on what had happened. And uh, he said he was an armored personnel carrier. There were three units. They were going through Iraq. And all of a sudden, he noticed all the villagers just disappeared. The town became incredibly empty, and they saw a shoulder-propelled uh, device immediately. Somebody called it out. It took out the front uh, armored vehicle, and his was the second. And the impact was so great that it flipped them upside down. He says, I remember very specifically, he had, uh, he had earbuds in, and he was listening to Coldplay. He could hear a song playing, a surreal feeling of hearing a song playing in one ear, the other ear, hearing the agony of other soldiers in pain. And then he kept hearing this alarm going off. Whenever an arm, armored personnel carrier, inner carrier, would, would take a direct hit or flip over, uh, it would send a signal to headquarters to let them know this, in case they couldn't make communications, that they're, they're in trouble. And so the men... Um, in there, some some were gone, some were wounded, and he began saying that there was death, deadly quiet. Then all of a sudden, a great amount of noise, and people started coming out. And later, he would say it was a picture. I'll never forget. I opened my eyes because I was playing dead. He said there were looks of concern and compassion on people, but they weren't in control. The violent, the terrorist, Al Qaeda, or you know, the Taliban, and whoever it wasn't Taliban, it was Al Qaeda. They were the ones in ISIS. They were in total control, and they were there with their guns, and they were ready to tear the bodies out. They cut his harness, brought him out, was pulling him out. Somebody was taking off his boots. People were, you know, ready. Basically, what were they going to do? Kill him? Were they going to take him hostage? At any point. Someone, a large woman, fell on him, embraced him, and began screaming. She screamed something. It wasn't later till through an Iraqi translator, basically not only communicated the words, but the feeling behind it. She fell on this soldier and proclaimed the right of a mother, which basically was this. If anyone ever came to arrest or take a, a young son out, the, the mother or father would say, you have to go through me first. And this mother fell on the soldier and said, you'll have to kill me first. This matriarch must have been very well respected in the town because they, they, they let him go. He said he remembers helicopters and the disbursement of people and they rescued him. And he told that story. It was interesting hearing and watching a story unfold that you don't see in the news. How do you explain that? How do you explain the cultural rescue of a mother to an all the training he'd ever been through, everything he'd been through? I mean, to become a marksman, to become someone who is going to be who learns survival tactics, who learned what it means to be with a team, 
rescued by a woman in a village who had never received one minute's military training. Sometimes stories have different endings. This is a story that is going to have a lot of different thoughts. And if it's hard to grasp a little bit, it's not unusual. Let's pick back up. We go to, uh, I think we're in verse, we're verse 5, was it? I think, 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust it through me with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. He also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men. And on the same day together, and the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And you think about this. In this vision of what I want you to have, there's Mount Goboa, there's the army fighting, and then at the very top would have been the king. He would have been wearing, um, we do know later, that he was wearing a crown. It would not have been a state crown of jewels. It would have just been a, a crown that he would have worn in battle. Very minimalistic, I'm sure, but nonetheless, a crown that indicated his rank. He would have been wearing a robe, significant of going to war, probably something that wasn't silk and purple and bright scarlet. It would have been something made of animal skins that said we are hunters and killers. He would have been uh, surrounded by his sons. Not all sons are there. One is not there. He's going to come up later in our study in the, in the coming weeks. In front of them, well, on the sides would have been armor bearers. An armor bearer was one who hauled the armor for the particular sons or the king. And then in front of them would have been their elite guard. At this moment, the army has, is fleeing. They're being demolished. And they're moving up towards the mountain. And Saul has nowhere to go. The Philistines are not only famous for being raiders and being killers and being for mercenaries, but they are also famous for mutilating and destroying victims that they capture before they kill them. We know historically what they have done in scripture to other people. They'll gouge their eyes out, they'll abuse them, and then they'll kill them. Saul, in an act of desperation, turns to his armor bearer, who is probably a man who's like a, almost like a personal bodyguard, very close, and he says, I want you to take my sword and thrust it through me now. Kill me now. Don't let these men do what they're going to do. The armor bearer looks at him in total fear and says, I can't do it. I can't do it. You're the There's no way. And so at this moment, in the last act of desperation, the sons are dead. Saul positions his sword and just drapes his body and falls against the sword, impales him and kills himself. The armor bearer takes a sword and does the same thing and kills himself. Men in the distance have watched the flags, the banners, the drummers, all they have been overrun. They're all gone. The last vestige of the army of Israel is over. The king is dead. What happens to Israel now? Philistines begin moving into towns. Verse 11. No, wait. Um, verse 8. Sorry. The next day, 
the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his three sons had fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But, I mean, you're thinking, man... This is like, these guys, they take off the head. Did you get, I don't know if you caught the irony. There's a few ironies in here. I'll point them out. Do you remember what David did to Goliath after he killed him? What do you do? Cut off his head. So now, the Philistines go in after they had that humiliating defeat years ago, and they take off the head, and they start parading with the head everywhere they could. And what they did, in case you're thinking, why didn't they take the body? Because they didn't bury the body, that was enough disrespect. Jewish culture would mean you would expect the body to be buried before the new day. What do I mean by the new day? The Jews counted the new day. We start the new day in the morning, right? You start the new day and then at 6 o'clock in the evening. A new day to a Jew is darkness. That's when the new day happens. And so they're saying this. We're going to leave this body here. We're going to let it rot. We're going to let it be eaten by animals. In that disrespect alone, we have his head and they walk off. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, these were other Israelites, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethsham. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and burned them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So, in these small towns, even though the army's gone, there were valiant men. Veterans returned. These were, these were strong, courageous men. The, this was not a contingent of men who fought as valiant men. They were valiant men. These were men who heard what happened. And they looked at each other and they said, we're going to go. And by the way, they're going to go 15 to 20 miles. I mean, you're going from here past land the lakes, you know, I mean, to walk into enemy territory to, just to retrieve headless bodies of your former king and his sons. They make that journey, they get there, they get the bodies, and you're probably asking, why would they burn the bodies? Jews didn't believe in cremation. So here's what they would do, but at the same time, is they didn't believe in cremation, they wanted a body buried, but why would they burn not only here, but other times? The reason they did this is what they would do in this case is they would consider the body to be the bones. And so they would take the body and they would burn it. Why? Because by now decay has set in. The smell had set in. These, these bodies um, weren't something that could just be transported without having incredible pungent smell. So they burned the flesh. They went in, cooled the bones down, brought them out, took the bones to a tree that was probably a favorite tree of this king or very significant and buried those bones and honored them right there. I have a tree at my farm. It's a cedar tree. It's where all my dogs are, are buried. You know, it's like where I could go through there and look and see. I remember, Stephen, you helped me with my poor little Jackson. He wasn't little when I buried him. And I, I remember thinking there, this tree, I was like, I have, I go back until I was eight years old. And all my, I just think that tree, everybody walks by, it's just a tree. No, that's my tree. Those are my babies under there. You know, like those are my dogs. Those are, and, uh, I suppose this tree was some significant. Whatever it was, they knew exactly where to take them. It, it runs exactly into chapter 2. Saul has no 
or I'm sorry, David has no idea what has happened in this battle. Chapter 2, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Okay, so let me break this down. Israel is fighting Philistines. David is still fighting the Amalekites. These raiders, these mercenaries, they're ruthless. They're bottom dwellers. Remember, the the Amalekites are the ones that go in and they're the ones that that kidnapped his wives. These are are just, he's still waging war. Remember, there were 400 of them, if you were here last week, 400 of them got away on camelback after they rescued their wives. David's still pursuing these guys. Verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, his clothes torn, dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, not been unusual to have um, runners come to tell what's going on. You ever heard of uh, like people run a marathon, twenty-six miles? The Battle of Marathon in, Greek, in, day, in the days of Greek warfare, um, a runner had run twenty-six miles. By the time he appeared to the town to give the, the story of what happened at the battle. He was completely, all his clothes were gone. He'd sweated off his clothes and he just simply gives the word Nike, victory. They won. So it was not unusual to have runners. This was not a runner. This was not somebody who ran to tell the news, this is the battle. This guy comes in, sweaty, dirty, ashes on his face. And he, he, he walks up and he, I, I need to see the king. Or not the king, I need to see David. What do you need to see David for? I have something. He's carrying a pouch. Something's in that pouch. What is it? He says, I need to see him. He brings him to David, and David says, what happened? What's going on? He says, I've just come from the army of Israel, the camp of Israel. They're all gone. The king and his sons are gone. And this man is probably thinking he is in for one of the biggest rewards of his life. Remember, David is a man who's been pursued for the last 12 to 13 years by this Saul. He has been pursued by him. Saul's tried to kill him. He can't even live in Israel because Saul wants him dead. Saul has killed, he killed 80-something priests just for giving him bread. Saul, this most wicked, this most vile man, is dead. And this guy gets the privilege of saying all the fears, all the things that's ever you've wondered about, when you can become the next king of Israel, when you can go home, I'm telling you that day is now. The king is dead. David is asking, tell me how it went. Verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him. And now you've got to remember, when you read this, I want you to picture, he's not reading it as a, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan? No, he is screaming. Yelling, you've just been given news of something. Remember the love that David had for Jonathan and the respect that David had for Saul. He's screaming it out. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be in Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. 
And when he looked behind, he saw me and he called to me and I answered him. I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, beside him and I killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head. An armlet that was on his arm. And then I brought him here to my Lord. Now, we weren't there. I wasn't there. I don't know if this man was there. In Saul's last moments. If you were to... And I try to read a huge cross-section when I'm studying for this. And, and I found one commentator. I think it's uh, maybe one out of eight or nine that said Saul may have been in the throes of death and this man ran up on him and it happened just the way it is. But 95% of commentators, I'd say, would say the man's an all-out liar. So I'm not going to just sit there and say he's a liar and you take that as gospel truth. I, I don't know. But at this point, we believe the man is lying. He probably got there, found the crown in the midst of who knows where it was lying, found it and brought it. At any point... This Amalekite was wanting something. He had no idea the reaction David was going to have. Um, he, when he says this, he killed him. Those are the worst words he could use. Do you remember when David saw Saul in the cave? Saul went in to go to the bathroom. And that was the moment. Kill him, kill him, kill him. His men are like, kill him. He goes up to kill him. He cuts off a piece of his robe. He walks out and says, I couldn't kill you. You're the Lord's anointed. When he said, I killed the king, at this moment, everything changed in David's mind. Then David, verse 11, took off his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, oh, by the way, now keep in mind, he went through mourning. Now he's looking at the young man and says, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. Anybody catch the irony there? Anybody, Bible students, or you remember where we, we were preaching earlier? Saul was told very clearly by Samuel, God spoke through Samuel to tell Saul, he said, tell Saul to kill every Amalekite there is. Did Saul do that? No. Remember he went in and he kept the plunder. He Remember he kept the, 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 the fatted animals and that. But what's, the irony is, Saul didn't finish off the Amalekites and now you have an Amalekite because he kept the plunder. Now you have an Amalekite bringing the plunder of, of King Saul to David. What an incredible strange circle, isn't it? An irony here. David said to him, verse 14, how is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. Can you imagine the reaction of this guy? He's sitting there holding an empty sack. David's holding a crown. Thought he gave the greatest news. And David looks at him after he's ripped his clothes. David said, how, how could you do this to the king of Israel? And lift your hand and kill him. And he looks over at his, at his attendants. He says, 
take him outside and kill him. But before he does that, he says something. He says in 16, And David said to the man, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is how much David viewed the position of the king of Israel. That that was for God to judge, God to do with, and no one else. If David couldn't kill him, and he had every right to kill him, how could any man kill him? And so this man, who thought he was going to reward, is taken out and executed right outside. um, I'm always quick to say this may be conjecture, but I think this is a very important point. When I first read this as a new believer, I'm like, man, David, gee whiz. All the guy did was come and tell you what happened. He brought you a crown. Maybe he may, I mean, you're going to kill the guy? What a signals is a sin to your other people? What are they going to think? I mean, how ruthless can you be? I think now, <clears throat> after walking in Scripture, reading this and preaching it, I've taught it, I've, and everything, sometimes something new jumps out. You ready for my new nugget? Here it is. I think he's doing this to state the case that King David, or David is now King David. He's honoring the role of the king. Because think about this with me. Think about this real quick. Reason with me here. The king of the Philistines still thinks David is his buddy. We've got to remember that. He's still looking, oh, David, man, that's my David. That was my honor, my bodyguard. He was going to go into war with us with the, against the Jews. The king of the Philistines still thinks David is his friend and ally. And what David is doing here is saying, I am now the king of Israel. He is sending a signal to the Philistines to say, I am back. I am here. I am now the king of all, over, of, of all of Israel. And I think it's a very profound statement. And David does something really interesting in verse 7. Does something that maybe we can't grasp, but here it is. Watch with me. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So let me, let me walk you through this little verse, which looks obscure. It looks like an intro verse. David is going to write a poem. It's going to be sung. It's a song. I want all the people to read it. And whenever the writer says, oh, behold, he's basically saying, oh, by the way, this is in the book of Jasher. What is the book of Jasher? If you're looking at your table of contents, don't. It's not in there. If you're like, where is this book of Jasher? Oh, it must be the Apocrypha. That's, uh, you know, there's, no, it's not in there either. What is it? It's not anything other than a book of military songs. It's a book of songs that would be sung in military parades. And so he's about to write poetry. One of my close friends, Mark Welch, his grandfather, um, passed away years, uh, well, about three or four years ago. He was one of my heroes. He was a man who fought in, um, uh, in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He was a machine gunner's mate, Silver Star, two Purple Hearts, incredible stories, the most humble man. And what he did was, and I'll never forget this guy, this man's man, wrote books on poetry. He wrote them to his wife. He'd re- write these poems, and he'd read one every night to his wife. And his name is Roy. I remember thinking, no, I mean, no one would ever make fun of Roy because he was just such a great, wonderful man. And he would just write these poems. And I mean, they were, they were over the top. 
I mean, they were mushy. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, she would just glee. And she would just be so happy when, she, when, he, when he read these. And at the funeral, we're able to read some of these, these poems. This is David writing a poem that's going to be sung in military marches. What he's going to say, I'm going to stop a few times and kind of break down for you because sometimes we just walk through it and I think, oh, I just mean something historical and poetic and I don't know what that means. But it has some meaning behind it. Here begins the song that David is writing. Not only for, remember, the love he had and respect he had for Saul, the king, but don't forget the love he had for Jonathan. And by the way, he's going to mention that in here in a way that we, as Westerners, right now, cannot really grasp. Here it is, verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Some of your verses, some of your descriptions may read, your beauty. Your beauty, O Israel. He referred to Saul and Jonathan as the beauty of Israel. It's fallen. Did you ever notice how the mighty have fallen? Um, we generally use that in a, in, a, in a context that's not complimentary. You know, kind of like one of you young guys want to wrestle with me and I beat you up. And I say, oh, the mighty have fallen. You know, I mean, like, you know, the mighty have fallen. It's something, a derogatory term. In this particular case, it has been saying, not, never. It's never. Uh, how the mighty, he said, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. What does he mean by that? I mean, if we were reading and singing this at your funeral, it would look really strange. <laughs> Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. What he's saying is this. Tell it not in Gath. Gath is, a, is one of the capital cities of, of the Philistines. Gath is going to be erupting in celebration that the king of Israel and Jonathan and his brothers are dead. He says, don't let Gath hear it. Why? Because they're going to celebrate. How do they celebrate? Because the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised. You know what they would do when they had a military entrance of a victory? The Israelites, the Philistines, the Amalekites... In a society where women were secondary, you couldn't go to this particular place, you couldn't vote with this, you couldn't be with the elders in this. But when it came to a military parade, they threw all the young girls out front, all the unmarried virgins. Why? Because they were the loudest in celebrating. This was like the Beatlemania of the, of the time. They're out there screaming, hooting, hollering, I mean, making noise. And he's saying, not in Gath. Don't let the Gath find out about this. Don't let these people come up and begin to cheer the death of our king. This is his agony writing this. I was in New York City, met an Iraqi taxi driver. I'm sorry, he wasn't Iraqi. Syrian. He was a Syrian taxi driver. And I was talking to him. I said, what, um, how long have you been here? He says, I came here right after 9-11. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if he had a connection as a translator or somebody, a uh, political refugee. And I said, well, how did that happen? I mean, the, the meter's over. We're done with the fair. And he just tells me the story. He said, 9-11 hit. 
The buildings were coming down. My wife and I are just praying. We're a wreck. And he said, outside, we could hear people cheering. And we went outside. And ISIS, it was a lot of ISIS supporters. They came out in the street. He said, and I'll never forget, they were celebrating the falling of these two towers. And I looked at my wife and said, we, let's get out of here. And we did everything we could. Rode donkeys over hills, took boats, fell off the boat, life preservers hanging on, two days rescued by Italian authorities, made it to America, taxi cab driver to say, I never want to be in a place that celebrated the death of innocent people. To think, how could people be that way? How could people? This is what would happen. The streets of Gath would have been full and people would have been screaming and yelling and shouting the demise of everything that David held dear. Verse 21, new mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Um, I can't conjecture too much about the other than it's obvious on, on the beginning of this verse, but in the bottom it says not anointed with oil. The shields, remember they were not metal. They were made out of leather. They were made out of animal skins. The archers, the initial archers, would wreak havoc with um, fire-tipped arrows. And so what you would do is you would take oil, they would take oil and they would brush it all over your your shield. And so when the when the arrow hit, it wouldn't uh, the oil would, it was not burning oil, it would suppress the flame. And it would, otherwise, if it hit a dry shield, the shield would catch on fire. And so he's saying this, the shield of Saul not anointed with the oil. That was a common term to basically mean if you saw a shield sitting in someone's home, which most of the standing army did, and if it was dry, it meant they hadn't been to battle in a long time. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. Meaning it's not, he's not stretching the the bow back anymore. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You talk about a heart of a man that writes that. There were only two people alive that knew David was going to be king. Saul, who didn't want him to be king, and Jonathan, who said, you'll be my king. Think about it. Jonathan should have been the next king. Jonathan, when he looked at David and the last time they met, painfully looked at him and said, I'm going to be your prince. I'm going to serve under you. You're going to be my king. David never forgot that love. And what he says is this, as much as David loves Jonathan, he respected them as much as Jonathan loved his evil, wicked, vile dad, Saul. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. In life they were together. Jonathan stayed at his dad's side, even though he knew his dad was wrong. And in death, what did they do? They died together on Mount Gilboa. But then you see the poetic love of just, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Remember all the by the way, remember all the the jealousy that Saul had towards David? Had you gone into Saul's presence and said, David is swifter than an eagle and stronger than a lion, Saul would have had you killed. But what does David say about Saul? This is the heart of David. This is the heart of a good man. Verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. 
who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Hey, do you remember I said the Philistines, they would throw their young girls out there in the parade to come home? He's saying to Israel, uh, you say, the, the, the virgin daughters, you come out and you celebrate in this time. You, you celebrate the fact that everything you have is because of this man. And you weep. Because all those things you're wearing are because this king kept you safe. All the ornaments that you're wearing, the jewelry, the dresses, all that outfit, all of that is because of this king. And never forget it. Verse 25. And this is where he talks about Jonathan. I'm beginning there. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. And the weapons of war perished. Verse 26. When you read about the love that David had towards Jonathan, it is interesting when I read different scenarios and listen to different people describe this. First of all, contextually, you have to remember the love of David had to his wives was not real strong. That was typical of the day. Unless you were in a rural area, peasantry, they loved their husbands and wives. But men in position like this took a wife for two reasons, pleasure and position. You had a wife that was brought in because you were the king and you wanted to be friends with her dad. That was his first wife. Remember, that was King Saul's daughter. David, here's your wife. Some dating process, right? There's your wife. Who is the, remember when he, when, how he proposed to the other one? Her husband died. David said, oh yeah, go check that out. He sends a guy on horseback and says, David wants you to be his wife. And she jumps on the horse and says, okay, let's go. (laughs) The love of men to women in that relationship was a certain love. Now I have have a commentary written by African pastors who were writing from rural villages with biblical training. And what's interesting is one of them described this love as this way. I love my wife. She loves me. I love my child. My child loves me. But then there's the love that my wife has for her child. It's a special love. This is a special love that says very clearly, there's a brotherhood that I've lost. I saw a man break apart at a funeral one time. He got to the funeral and he broke up and he simply said this. He said, this is my funeral as well. It was a very wealthy man, a very powerful man. And it was very evident. And he said, and I just, he says, I'm not saying this against any of you that are out there that may be my friends. But most of my friends are because of what I do and how much I make. At least you met me that way. And this was my friend that knew me when. And part of me is gone. And what David is saying is this. I'm going to be the king, and everybody knew I was the valiant warrior and hero. But this man loved me for who I was. And that was a pain and a loss. Can you go back? We close with this one verse. 
I'm on my porch last night. I'm racking my, racking my brain, racking my brain, racking my brain. How do I preach this? Do I do a review? What do I do? Do I... Um, verse 20. I remember thinking, where am I going to go with this? And then the last minute, I go back to this. Tell it not in gas. Why would you write, and some of you who are literists in here, you know, literature, studies of literature, you would say the prose of this poem is really weird with this jump, this just jumps out. There's love, there's compliments, and it basically says, tell this not in Gath. I think Gath is more alive than ever. Gath is that person or that place or those people who enjoy the demise of other people. You want to see how evil and vile in the world we live? I'll never forget the first... Now I don't even look on comments. If somebody dies tragically, like there's something happens, I don't even want to look at the comments to see what kind of internet troll who lives in a basement just wishes to throw something out to hurt people. I remember like one time I, I was a pastor. Was, I think Bell Shoals. You remember when the pastor died in a plane crash? He had a small plane. He died. And I remember like, oh, terrible. And I looked and the comments were... Oh, yeah, what's a pastor doing with a plane? It was a small little plane that a man enjoyed flying around and take people up in a little Cessna. Oh, yeah, he deserved it being in a plane. Oh, the pastor's now dead. What's he going to see if he can raise him? I mean, the most evil things. Folks, that's Gath. That is Gath celebrating the demise and the, and, and the pain of someone. In every one of us, there is a Gath that would love to see us fail. There is a gath that is, is one that just celebrates when you don't succeed. I thought, I, you, know, you never thought I would bring up Dolly Parton in a sermon, but here it is. <laughs> Dolly Parton said that she was in a high school in this little small town in Tennessee, and they were announcing her different, you know, what you want to be, and she said, I, she said, I stood up, and she said, I want to be a famous singer. And everybody laughed. And she said, you know, that laughter fueled me all the way to being the singer I became. So Gath can do something to you. It can bring you down. And it can, you can recognize it will celebrate in your demise. And for some of you, that Gath is yourself. is an insecure self that doesn't think you can make it. That reminds you, just when people say you're godly, it takes you to a place to say, no, you're not. Just when somebody says you can make it, you go, no, there's no way. That gath can haunt you till your dying day. Or you can do something with that gath. You can recognize that has no control over you. I told you this story and I'll tell it to you again and you got to forgive me because it just is a story that just jumps out. There may be two of you who've never heard it, so I'll tell it again. Um, I was at a... I was 19 years old. I'm downtown Tampa. Actually, I'm younger than that, I think, at the time. And I remember walking up to a uh, historical cemetery, Oaklawn Cemetery, and it was overrun. This was not the, you know, the new uh, rejuvenated downtown Tampa we have now. This is what everybody was leaving. Remember, Moss Brothers is closed. Wolf Brothers is gone. Everybody's leaving. I mean, tumbleweeds on Franklin Street pretty much, you know, and there in the middle right in the northern edge of town is an Oaklawn Cemetery, an old cemetery, weeds growing up homeless people there, syringes it's a drug den I mean these, these tombstones went all the way back to the 1800s the founding fathers of this town all buried out there, historically I'm just walking around looking and I see this man on his knees older man, pulling weeds 
And I go over it. I'm like, hey, can I help you? He goes, well, I, I can use all the help I can get. His name is Julius Gordon, Jeff Gordon. He's a retired city manager of San Antonio, Texas. He moved to Tampa and retired. His wife died. And he said, I just walked by the cemetery and I said, I'm going to fix it. It was right outside Morgan Street Jail. And we began, I had to go down there every occasional Saturday and help him pull weeds and get things done. And I, we restored tombstones, ordered new tombstones from the Veterans Administration. Like, they would come to my house, these tombstones. It was really interesting. I never, I never told the story. I had delivery one time, and the guy knocked on the door. It was panic. He said, I think I just drove over a grave. I said, no, it's a long story. But I had all these tombstones for veterans, and I would take them out there, put them in my truck, place them. Because, you know, this, I mean, and we put them up. And one day, if you ever want to walk through, I'll walk you through it. I'm pretty proud Jeff now. Jeff's buried out there. The city gave him a plot, you know. And, and we did this in an incredible way. One day, we got a phone call. They were building uh, the Ice Palace. Amelie, it'll always be the Ice Palace to me, but they're building the Ice Palace, and they, and they found a military graveyard, and there were the remains of three soldiers, and they found some buttons and some bone fragments and that, and they had sent them to University of Florida to be studied, and the city said, hey, can uh, we put these, because this had happened before when they built some down there, they found some Seminole Indian remains, they put them there, so we said, yeah, well, I mean, all we got to do, the area is no bigger than a speaker, because the remains are real small. And so we contacted, Jeff contacted the army. Said, hey, we're going to be burying three, the remains of three people. We get out there on a Saturday morning. Um, we're supposed to be there at 10. Get there at 9. And we walk up. And uh, what, is, what are we looking at? I mean, there is an honor guard from the U.S. Army. And they're dressed blues. White gloves. The sh- I mean, the shoes were just as shiny. The, um, the, the ribbons, the, the, I mean, the, the, you know, the fruit salad and these guys. Was, I mean, everything was just perfect. There was a, um, a rifle squad. There was a color guard. There was a taps player. There were three other guys, uh, um, an officer and two other men. And these guys, I mean, this looked like Arlington Cemetery. This looks like the change of the guard. And there they were with no spectators. No one. And in from the eastern gate of the cemetery rolls a Ford Taurus. These two guys from the University of Florida get out. They pop the trunk, pick up this orange shoebox, shoe box, and they walk up and sheepishly, like theirs, caught off guard. And they, and they get out. And that moment, that soldier comes in and he grabs that box and he brings it to his chest. And at that moment, the other two soldiers just do a slow salute. And you hear a command. And the firing, uh, the, the rifle squad goes to immediate attention. The flags come up, and you kind of, I mean, they're beautiful, gold tasseled flags. The bugler with a shiny trumpet standing off to the side. In that moment, the transfer of what was studied to what was going to be honored. And for the next 10, 15 minutes, we saw a military ceremony that was done for no one else other than those men. I don't think I've heard taps played as beautiful. I don't think I've heard the snap of rifle fire so sharp. I don't think I've seen such impeccable honor. And we stood there, hands in front of us, just just thinking, what an honor to be here. In our life, you don't see a lot of honor. Sometimes you don't see a way out. Sometimes you don't see anything. And sometimes when, like Hugh Quimby, when his 
Mom passed at 96, and I called and said, is there anything I can do? Jake, she had been ready to go for years. I'm probably sure forgotten about by anybody who knew her outside of family. Most of her friends had gone. But on the other side of this life was an honor waiting. On the other side of of that life is a picture of beauty and magnificence we can't even grasp. And sometimes that beauty and magnificence comes to us in ways that you can't read about in a Bible commentary. Sometimes it comes in ways of an Iraqi woman falling on a soldier and saying, you can't get to him except through me. The most beautiful scripture I can know that God loves me is this. The only way to God is through his son. Any one of us in here that are saved in Jesus Christ know the only way to the Father is through the Son. Now how about this? You ready? Have you ever thought of it the other way? That the only way the enemy can ever lay hold on you is to go through God's Son. And he can't. He can't touch you. No matter what you're wrecked with, no matter what's demolished you, no matter where you think you, you, you are, no matter think you, who, who you're controlled by, and the things that... Even that does not have victory. Because any accusation, anyone who comes at you in any attack must go to the Lord first. And they can't. Because you're his. Tell it not in Gath. Whatever Gath exists in your life, know there is a victor. Know there is a mighty warrior that's been threaded throughout this entire first Samuel. That mighty warrior is still alive. And if you're a believer, he's in you. And when you're too weak to fight, he fights. And when you're too weak to, to, to pray, he says he prays for you. And when you've lost your faith, you ready for this? He says, I will stay faithful. What a promise we have. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you've given us the ability to see truth in your scripture. And Lord, thank you for those of us who know you as our mighty warrior. And if there's anyone in this room who's never done that, Lord, we don't emotionally twist arms. Lord, we don't push people into decisions. Father, it's something only you can do. You draw people to you. And if there be anyone in here who's never received you as their Lord, as their defender, and the lover of their soul, Lord, they would call on you right now. Lord, they would call on you in a way that would just simply say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me from myself. Save me from my sins. Save me to a place that I cannot even imagine. Thank him for dying for you on a cross 
thank him for raising again from the dead for you. Now just tell him this. Lord, I surrender to you. I'm going to do something, but I want you to trust me. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in a way that no one in this room, not even me, not the band, not the sound booth, no one's going to look. It's just between you and him. If that was you, and no one's looking. No one's going to come up to you and say, come follow me. If that was you and you said, Lord, that was me who got saved. No one in here opening their eyes. Just raise your hand and put it back down. And if that be you, what a joyful beginning you have. And I pray that in due time, you'll find the courage to tell your friend, tell your family member, tell one of us what you've done. But today you've told your gaff that it no longer has control and no longer has dominion for the great and mighty warrior now has written your story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.